Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to the Business Builder Show, where we feature champions in their respective industries from all over the planet. Our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to find out how to be a mindful entrepreneur and Ravi Karani. I'm going to actually start over again. I stumbled a little, didn't he? But I'm going to start at that point. No, I might as well start at the beginning. Here we sure. go. One, two, three. Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to the Business Builder Show, where we feature champions from all over the world in their respective industries. Now, our mission is to inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence by bringing you timely, provocative and actionable resources. For example, today, we're going to teach you how to become a mindful entrepreneur, and Ravi Karani is going to tell us exactly how he did it. Now, he's the founder of Sutro, which is a robotics water startup, which tells you all the time that your water is safe. So, Ravi, who's your ideal client? Who do you serve? Yeah, actually, our ideal client is backyard swimming pool and hot tub owners, right? So imagine the 14 million pools and spas in the United States. Um, you have your backyard pool party, and the people that have those pools need to measure if the water chemistry is safe. Um, our unit, which I like to call a floating laboratory, just uh, floats in the swimming pool, actually does the tests with its robotics, and then sends everything to your phone with a simple thumbs up or thumbs down of, is your water chemistry good? Great. If it's not, then here's what to do to fix it. The technology does have extendable arms into other water industries, right? So if you think about where is water used in the world today, you can immediately think about drinking water, you think about agriculture, you think about uh, cooling water towers, we think about food and beverage, all of our meat production, all of our milk production, even down to the wine and the beer that we drink is used making water that needs to be at a particular quality. Sutro also can work in those markets. And starting actually this next year, we'll start to explore a few of those with adding on a different type of sensor cluster that can actually measure those other parameters for those other markets. Excellent. Excellent. I actually have a couple in mind as, as I listen to you explain that uh, you and I can talk a little bit after the uh, podcast is over. Now, yeah. uh, what problem, uh, let's focus on these, on, on your current core client there, the homeowner, what problems exist for those people that you solve for them? A green pool, right? So if you picture a pool that hasn't been treated, doesn't have any sort of chlorination or sanitization inside there, the water is a great breeding ground for life. And so you get algae, you get uh, microbials, you get bacteria. If you're not managing your water chemistry, that's what your pool ends up with. And actually funny story, my dad used to have a chain of pool and spa supply stores in Southern California. So I grew up in sunny Southern California, running at a pool store. I've done everything from being a pool boy myself installing pumps, putting chemicals in people's pools, all the way from a behavior that pool people have or people that own pools is they will literally bring in a water sample. They'll take a water bottle and they'll drive to a pool store and they'll get somebody like me, a guy that runs the pool store to actually test their water. And so what Sutro does is it 
basically gives the homeowner a little bit more of a heartbeat so they can actually know what's happening with their water. So they don't end up slipping too far into the ground where their pool is actually green and they really can't use it for a week or two weeks and then have to end up paying $150, $200 to keep their pool back blue again. Yes, indeed. Just a, a true admission. I have a little teeny pool. It's a fountain. It was. It's probably 120 gallons, I guess, 120 gallons. And I was away for just a month. And I had a just a one of the hockey puck sized little little devices in there, not a device, a product in there. Mm-hmm. And I glass for a month. It didn't. So when I came back, actually, when I came back, I looked at it, it was fine. The next day, though, I had a quarter inch of, of algae in that, in that little field. Now, it was easy for me to clean that up. But I can imagine that happening to a, a, a pool or a spa. Yeah. How mechanically, once you give us maybe a case study and kind of walk us through how uh, somebody would find your company, how they engage with you, how they how you sell your products and services, just give us the whole kind of gamut, the whole story, maybe a real one, maybe just a typical one. Yeah. The marketing funnel is pretty traditional to what you would see an e-commerce company do online. So we use Shopify to actually host our e-commerce store on. And if a user, a pool owner, let's say they're living in Los Angeles, California, there's a lot of pool pools around LA, is searching for something on Google, right? The first thing you do on Google is you usually have what's called an intent-based search because you're intentful in going into Google and figuring out what the answer to your question is. The way that I like to liken Google to is Google is nothing but a question and answer engine, right? You ask Google a question and it gives you a bunch of answers. And if you have the answers available for that question, we then pop up as a link on Google. And so that's actually what what I call the front of the battlefield. When somebody's going onto Google and they type in, how do I manage my pool chemistry? I have green algae. What's the cheapest chemicals to buy? What's my nearest pool store? And all of those kind of questions, Sutro should be the first ad that pops up, what's called paid search or something that's organic, which is called SEO. And so we build both of those to basically capture the user. Once they actually enter our website and they've clicked on a blog, they've maybe read an article on how to keep your pool blue, or they're actually interested in the product and they show up on the website, we use what's called retargeting on Facebook. And so top of funnel is Google, middle of funnel is Facebook. And on Facebook, Primarily, Facebook, again, has properties such as Instagram as Facebook. If a pool owner goes onto Instagram.com or on the Instagram app, they will see an ad that says you should buy a Sutro, right? And that that probably takes about three to five touch points. Once that's done, we usually have a conversion. They'll come back to the website and they'll hit the buy button, right? The same way that you hit a buy button on any e-commerce website. That basically triggers our distribution center in Los Angeles, to prepare a unit. Within about two days or so, a unit is packed, labeled, and is out for shipping. The UPS delivery driver picks it up and delivers it to your doorstep. After that, we actually have a monthly subscription because we actually have liquid reactants, liquid reagents that actually do the chemistry. That's what's actually measuring the color of the water. And those get used up and they have to be replenished every single month. And so once you get the device, you have to go on the app and you sign up for the subscription. Once you sign up for the subscription, you basically get that cartridge that's delivered, just like a print cartridge, is delivered to your doorstep on a monthly basis. 
And that's generally how our funnel works from somebody that's a pool owner to discover us, then see that they should buy the product, actually buy it, and then begin using it. Okay, excellent. So it's, it's virtually all of your transactions via your website e-commerce, or do you have some distribution system going on as well? We don't have a third party or a third, yeah, third party distribution, mostly because we are a startup and we want to make sure that we're conserving margins at this stage. One of the things we have done though, is I mentioned earlier that people will literally bring a bottle of water into a pool store. One thing actually, Greg Creed, I think he was the CEO of either Taco Bell or Yum Brands has taught me is he, you should look at what's called CUOs, category use occasions, is when do people at most feel like they need to actually have a product like yours, solve a problem that they have. And the time that we can think of is actually when that user goes in with a water bottle into the pool store, they're going to have the highest intent in understanding what is my water chemistry and what should I do to treat it. So what we actually do in terms of a secondary channel is we have a web software. The web software lives at the pool store. So when the customer goes in, the pool store uses our software because we're a great water testing company and we have a lot of knowledge around how to do water test, gets a text message, an email, or a printout of your water chemistry information using the chemicals that they have at that pool store. And that also becomes a magnet for us as well, because we're really at that point of contention of when the user actually feels like testing their water and they are. Excellent. So tell us a bit about how you're different from your competition, either uh, directly, if there is any, and then indirectly. I think you've touched on it with the, uh, the the pool boys and so forth and so on. So tell us about how you differentiate yourself. Yeah. So if you're at the kind of top line of the market, your total market is basically consistent of about 14 million pools and spas. 85% of these people actually do it themselves. They're what we call as DIYers. They will go with a test strip, dip it in their water, look at the color, and then go to a pool store or go to amazon.com to buy their chemicals. Only 15% of the market is actually serviced by these pool guys or these people that are servicing the swimming pools. So if we focus on the 85%, which is actually where the majority of our market is, the leading product in the market is a test strip, is a cheap two cent, three cent test strip that you can buy from a pool store, buy from Amazon. The problem with this test strip is that it ends up driving what's called a reactive behavior. People are always, one, they have to go out there and manually test. And then secondarily, they're just always chasing their water chemistry. What Sutro does is we actually change the paradigm because we build a preventative system because the monitor is always measuring your water and we tell you as an alert if something has gone wrong. So that's how we first differentiate ourselves from the existing technology on the market, which the majority of the population have a test strip. If you look at our technology compared to other smart technologies out there, we are the only technology that actually uses the liquid colors, the liquid reagents that people are actually used to. Everything else on the market uses what are called probes. And to make a long story short around the technology, those probes end up drifting. So think about it as a speedometer that's broken. If you were driving a car and if you were supposed to be going 80 miles an hour and your speedometer is reading 40, you're going to speed up. But that means that your speedometer is broken and you actually have the wrong feedback loop given your sensor. That's what happens with those glass bulb sensors. We are the only accurate sensor that actually uses real reagents inside of our device, which is why I call ourselves a floating laboratory. 
I'm curious about, and I don't want to get too deep into that. We'll let our listeners go and seek it out. But I'm curious about Olympic-sized pool or a, a spa. Does your does it matter to your device how big the how big of a if you will container of water it's sitting in? It doesn't, and the key is around circulation of water. So okay. if you're turning that body of water over at the same rate that you would a small spa versus an Olympic-sized pool, that molecule of water that's at the deep end has traveled all through the pipes, gone through the pump, the filter, and come back to where it's at. Now, if the water is stale, then you can end up getting discrepancies across the water. But that's the biggest kicker there is as long as your pump system is circulating your water, it doesn't make a difference because the water is the same in every part that you measure at in the swimming pool, given the average of the entire day. Oh, neat. Thanks for that little, little detour. Yeah. Okay. So I think our listeners understand totally where you sit in the market, how you've got so far a, 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 a nice blue ocean for yourself. Tell us, how in the world did you come up with this idea, how you built your business, Walk through the history of the company, if you would, Ravi, and tell us some of the key milestones, things that went right, maybe things that didn't go so right, and what you learned from both of those, if you will, situations. Yeah, the origination story is actually pretty simple. Imagine a kid growing up in Southern California at his dad's pool and spa store and running these water tests of people bringing in these water bottles over and over again it just began to hit me that there has to be a better solution. How do I take what my father has built in the pool store and package everything up in, in basically a robot in an actual application? The story gets a little bit interesting because I actually was an associate at a venture capital fund in India. We had about, I think it was a small fund, 15 or $20 million of total capital deployment. And the vision of the fund was to focus on people who earned less than $2 a day. So we would fund companies that were building businesses and business models on catering to what they would call at the time, the bottom of the pyramid. A really interesting spectrum of companies that kind of work in this strata. We had everything from solar and rural electrification. How do you build companies that help with poverty alleviation? And obviously in India, the biggest problem is water. Water is the largest vector and largest killer actually in the world through mostly diarrhea and dysentery. And so a lot of the deal flow that we got on the table were around water filtration. But okay. as I mentioned earlier, water is different in every single application. The same chlorinated water that you might have to keep your pool blue is probably not good to plant your use to water your grapes because that high chlorine content is probably going to kill your grapes that you're trying to grow. Neither should you take a, a cup of water and drink your pool water. So drinking water is different than your agriculture water, which is different than your swimming water. And so it starts to hit us of what's the quality of the water? You have this filter that's solving for everything, but what is it, the application, what is the, it, the need that you're actually filtering for? And when we started digging deep into the sensor market, we realized that there really is no efficient and no affordable way to actually measure water chemistry outside of these test strips or really expensive devices that are on the market upwards of $10,000. And so those two kind of tangential threads of me growing up in a pool store and seeing this model in India got us to build the first prototype. The first mishap I made was try to sell to the Indian government. 
stupidest thing a startup can do. Don't try to don't try to sell to the Indian government because they are riddled in red tape. They will just take you're gonna probably your startup will die on the vine before you even get to talk to the first person to actually give you a purchase order for your technology. So he came back, flipped the model around, and I said, Hey, why don't we go ahead and focus on people that own swimming pools, right? They're wealthier. We can go ahead and fund the initial business model off of people that own swimming pools. And then we'll build the long tail on getting into the larger B2B models, the larger sales cycles, and potentially governments and municipalities down the line. And so that's actually what kicked off the initial origination story of Sutro and also our first mishap that we had before we actually made the first device. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. So the model, when you say go to the wealthier people, the Elon Musk model was the way he built Tesla. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful deal. Tell us about how you how you built your team, what some of your key hires were. And, and third, in that same space, how you went about getting the talent you wanted, how you, how you what's your pay philosophy, what's your overall HR people philosophy. Walk through the people side for us, Robbie. Yeah. So I, first of all, from a product standpoint of how we initially built the technology, I always view, I'm of the philosophy of the lean startup, right? The Steve Blank methodology of find a product problem, find a problem first, and then go ahead and build a solution for that problem. This thinking of build it and they will come just usually doesn't work because you end up as I was, I'm an engineer, you have this kind of engineer that's sitting in a room alone, building this really cool stuff. And then they go out to the market and really nobody wants it because you haven't actually built the puzzle piece that's going to solve that problem. And so that's the first thing we did. We actually first went to the market. We put up a landing page. We said we were in beta and we wanted to just get the temperature. We wanted to understand the mindset of what people were doing. With me growing up in the pool store, I had a leg up in understanding how people treat their pools. But that's even a different use case than somebody putting a robot in their swimming pool, right? There's a lot of these questions of, you trust the robot. How do you, what are, what are you going to pay for it? How much is a problem really worth to you? Do you really care about taking the test strips or is it part of a family thing that you do on the weekend with your son or your daughter and you show them how to test the water, right? It can be a family thing. And so we don't, you want to make sure you're actually solving the right problem and not just building something for the sake of building it. Around people operations and building the right part of the team, once we figured out that this really was a core problem, we then actually needed to stay extremely focused on making sure that we actually solve the core problem because many times entrepreneurs want to solve everything. Where I could have built a device to do agriculture and talk to farmers and then also talk to pool owners, two very different customers, two very different products. We needed to stay so focused on pools. And even in pools, we needed to niche down and say, what kind of pool owners? Are these pool owners in Boston that have their pools only open for five months a year? Or should we focus on Los Angeles and California, right? We can spend one ad dollar way more efficiently if I focus on a geography like Los Angeles than focus across the US. And so once we started doing that, we stayed extremely focused. We needed to actually build the product. And so we started with the hardest problem first, which is actually the hardware. Building plastics, building electronics is extremely tough. I have a soft heart for a lot of hardware companies because not only are they building a usable app, just as all software companies are, but they actually need to build a physical thing that people are going to hold, touch. And the second that people get their hands on things, you twist a screw the wrong way because you didn't know which way the, the lid opened. You just have to really think about how people are going to actually interact with the physical world. And that's what we tackled first. So we spent a good part of 30% of our time in China working with the manufacturers over there, working with how do you make 
electronic boards. You can always go to Amazon and order 10 parts of something. But when you need to make 10,000, 100,000 of a unit, there's a scalability factor which starts to play where you just can't keep ordering 10 units off Amazon and screwing it in your garage, right? We need to build scalability. And in that example that I gave, there is a team that you first bring on that are the Jack or Jane of all trade. They wear many different hats. They jump from spot to spot. And as the organization begins to mature, what I've started to realize and what we're doing now is we're hiring much more specialized people that are specialized in operations, people that are specialized in supply chain, people that are specialized in distribution. Whereas before we just used to have our mechanical engineer do that because he made the product and he needs to ship it now. And so as the organization matures, that's my people ops mindset of how do we hire and who we should hire. And the last piece I should say is I look at anybody that touches the organization. And I, I say that broadly in the sense of your customers touch your organization, your investors touch your organization, your acquirers do, your employees do, other stakeholders like your advisors, your mentors, your lawyers, your accountants. Your entire game of building this company is to have and surround yourself with the best people possible. And that sometimes comes with even firing a customer. That can even mean that you're firing an investor, even though you might need the money. If it's not a good fit, you probably don't want to be with them because the longer term implications of bringing in a bad person that doesn't have a great culture fit, that just doesn't see your vision, can ruin you more than getting that $10,000, $20,000, $500,000 that you first needed down to your investors, to your customers, to your employees. And so I say my people ops game is much larger than just the people in the, in, in the employee pool or the actual organization, but it's everybody that touches the product because you even find the wrong customer. They can leave a bad review for you on Twitter because they're just angry. And maybe you should have cut the cord a long time ago, but you just tried to keep them on board. And so it's better to find the right people across the board. So as part of that, I would imagine you've either designed or a culture evolved. So tell us about the culture. What core values and so forth do you guys, if you will, embrace? So we definitely embrace transparency as one. Within the organization itself, we want to be extremely transparent. And so if there's anybody that has a question, there's no question that's too stupid. If anybody has a tiff with somebody, if there's a if there's an expectation mismatch or hey, John, you should have given me this product requirements document on Friday and it's two weeks later, right? All of those things, people raise their hand very quickly because we just want to build a culture of transparency because the longer things sit in people's minds, the more our brains just keep going in this loop and you can turn something that might've been a small kindling into a large campfire. And we definitely don't want that to happen. The second thing that we actually have as a company culture is we reward failure and we reward trying things consistently, continuous iteration would be in the vein of that. In the sense of one, there's no question that's too stupid, but secondarily, if you have an idea that's out on left field or something that just might not be within the radius of what we're doing, that's how we started. We're a startup. We came into this market. We were birthed into this world because we came up with an idea that was a little bit far off a of left field. And what ends up happening with companies is they just get way too secure and they start thinking about the what ifs around the opportunity costs and they end up not taking decisions. And so we always reward in iteration, continuous iteration, and we reward failure, but failure in the sense of taking small risks and seeing if things work, if they do or if they don't. All again, back to the same philosophy that we first started off with the leading startup of make sure that your customer actually has a problem. 
And that can be whether you're building an internal tool, that can be whether I'm sending an email as an investor update. Do my investors need to hear this? Do they care about it? Understand what you're actually doing across the organization. Validate that's a problem and then iterate and make sure you just keep iterating forward. And so those are kind of the two tenants we have from a company culture standpoint. That's nice. I like those two. Well, let's move up a bit, not necessarily up, but tell me a bit about management. So what's your management team look like? How do you how do you guys hold your meetings? What do you talk about in the meetings? What's the management culture look like? Yeah. So we were we were acquired back in 2018. And so I do have an an investor, a board, an, an acquiring team that I have to work with. I will not talk about them for a second and zoom into what actually happens at Sutro because we are a wholly owned subsidiary. We're kept at an arm's length. And so we get to make a lot of decisions within our own confines. The management team to that question is myself as president. There are two kind of opposing arms. One is product and the other is RevOps or revenue operations. And in between there, we have a product manager or project manager that basically make sure the glue is held between the product team and the RevOps team. In the product team is the hardware side of things, right? The manufacturing operations, the distribution, the logistics, the shipping. Alongside that is the chemical engineering team, the mechanical engineering team, the electrical engineering team, and then the software team. So basically anybody that anything that's actually consistent as product lives under the product team. On the revenue operation side, we have anything that is responsible for generating revenue or keeping revenue. And so inside of that, we actually have our marketing team, our sales team, and our customer support team. We made that change three years ago. We used to have a marketing and sales team and then a customer service team. We realized that the three of them should actually sit under the same roof because they're all responsible for acquiring customers and keeping customers. And the project manager makes sure that the product is actually kept at the highest regard because at the end of the day, we can have the best customer service, but if the product doesn't work, people are still going to return it. And so in a sense, product is also responsible for making sure that they're keeping revenue maintained and also keeping the subscription up by having a robust product. In terms of structure and how we have our meetings and what we do, we use a, a methodology called OKRs, which are objective and key results. Um, we set them on a yearly basis. So every single year, we basically set OKRs for the 12 months. And then what we end up doing is we have quarterly OKRs that actually nest inside of those yearly OKRs. And so the way that I envision it is it's mine and the acquirer's responsibility, as well as the head of product and the head of RevOps to build the North Star, right? We need to figure out what that yearly OKR is going to be at the kind of highest level. And then what's done is actually we go down to the lowest level of the organization, down to the developers, down to the customer service representatives. And again, in that philosophy of listening to your customer, we, we turn on our ears and we say, hey, customer service representative, what problems are you seeing? And they're saying, okay, I have these problems in the product. It takes me too long to answer an email because of this email software we use. Customers are not getting an answer on this particular thing because I don't understand the world in which actually I'm supposed to interact there. We talk to the revenue, the marketing and sales team of what's your problem. I don't have enough prototypes to give to pool stores. The web product is really hard to set up because we have to get a username and password. And so we take all these problems. Those get bubbled up to the leads of each of those teams, the head of customer service, the head of sales, the head of marketing. And they basically tell it to the folks that are the head of product and the head of RevOps. What we do then is because this has come up from a nested up process, 
we don't ever want to end up with a waterfall where it's the top management that's just continuously pushing down objectives. But as long as the folks that are the doing the customer service, that are building the code, understand what the North Star is, and they can then reflect what their daily problems are, we then end up getting quarterly OKRs, which might be build a better onboarding process for our web product for the pool stores. And in that can be included, make a better password and username feature, which then goes on the product team. The product team then takes that, they go ahead and put it into their sprint planning. They source it. They say, hey, it's going to take two weeks to actually finish this. They time box it. And then the feature gets launched. We go to the RevOps team. We tell the customer service guy, the sales guy, hey, we solved the password issue. You can now go back to your customers, the pool stores, the end users, and tell them that we, this issue has been solved. And so that's a small example of how we use management, how we use OKRs, and how we use a bottom-up methodology to actually collect feedback from the folks that are on the ground to really build structures and objectives that will solve not only the North Star, but solve the real problems that people in the organization have. Okay, excellent. Thanks for that. That's a gorgeous explanation. Let's talk about finance. So we know that you started your business out of your piggy bank, and you mentioned the word investors a couple of times. So give us the how you finance the business, when 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 revenue started to, if if you will, pay for its pay its own way, if you will. So how did it all happen? How did you finance things? So we have been in R and D for a good part of four years. The entire initial first few years of Sutro's existence was was basically a loss for from a from a balance sheet perspective because we were taking investor dollars and basically building out core intellectual property that makes us the only sensor on the market that's able to do what we do. We were actually picked up before we commercialized the product. And so we, from an investor standpoint, didn't actually see revenue come through the door until we got acquired. And our acquiring, our, our acquirer basically put in the necessary financing to help us commercialize the product. That's where we spent time in China. We make sure that we manufacture the product, build the distribution. And revenue, actually, we we launched on March of 2020. And so this is actually our third real year in the market of really making revenue. And out of a seven-year journey, three year, the last three years have been the ones where we've truly been in market. That was an interesting strategy that you were basically acquired on your idea as opposed to the financial results. So mm -hmm. you are, sounds, sounds to me like you're a fantastic visionary. <laughs> and you can explain it well to people. So yeah. what, what's holding you guys back now? What would you say the obstacles, the mountains you're trying to climb now? The biggest problem we're having right now is basically costing down our unit economics. So now that we're in year three of our startup, we're, we're beginning to become more of a mature startup. We have tens of thousands of users out there. We're just, we're continuously scaling up operations. This isn't me answering customer service tickets anymore like I was at day one. And so... In that, when you dial up the volume or you stick shift from second gear to third gear, you're in a you're in a whole different world, right? Your, your your RPMs have dropped down again. You need to ramp them back up to get back up to the speed that you need to get to. And so that's really in the that's the core issue that we're facing right now is how do we've just shifted gears? We need to go ahead and where our, our user base is drastically increasing. How do we go ahead and on a per user basis? not pay so much for customer service, not pay so much for acquisition of users through Facebook and Google, not pay so much for the units that we're actually delivering so we can actually cost down and make a larger margin. 
And so a lot of it now is actually on rebuilding and building our unit economics around what does it mean to be profitable, given the increase in volume that we're seeing in this last year, and we're going to continue to see in the next two or three years. Excellent. So how can uh, our various listeners, I'm thinking about customers, vendors, you mentioned uh, your whole stakeholder picture. How can those various people get a hold of you, Ravi? Yeah, you can go to mysutro.com to see the product if you want. That's M-Y-S-U-T-R-O.com. And if you want to find me, you can actually find me on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. Just probably search in LinkedIn, Ravi Karani Sutro, and I'll be the first person that pops up on there. Okay, so excellent. Yeah, I know that because I did find you that way as I, now that I remember. So yeah. Ravi, what's a, a single question that I maybe should have asked you or didn't think of that would give a lot of uh, value to our audience once you pose and answer the question? The question I would actually, I would ask to myself is, how do you get started? I, I have this problem with a, not problem, I, I mentor a lot of founders and they they have this issue of rejection in their own mind where they're scared to take that first step out of the door and they would much rather keep inputting their own capital into the product or sitting in their home tinkering. But the real value and real revenue generation comes when you get out of the building. And that would be my answer is, is how do you really get started? Is it as simple as just do it? Like you release your fears of rejection. They're going to happen. The fact that you're actually here right now shows that you're showing up. The next step is to actually just get out there and do it. So did you actually then uh, launch a, a minimally viable product at the beginning, or did you get it pretty well the, refined before you actually let somebody play with it? Oh, my! everything we do is a minimum viable product. That's like, what I thought you were going to say, particularly when you started with a lean startup mentality. That's gorgeous. Yeah. So thanks, Ravi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So everybody, in closing, let's focus on a single fact, and Ravi hit on this pretty hard, and that is our businesses do not become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner first creating a visionary strategy, second, having a system of management to execute that strategy, and number three, leveraging high-performance teams. Now, you can get your hands on those three tools, just go to getbillsgift.com and you'll get yours for free. Thanks for listening. Ravi, thanks for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Thanks again.